0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. We're
1: having a chili supper October the 2nd and the newspaper wanted to do something about it. So we're having a sample of the chili and Somebody from the newspapers coming.
2: Probably never had chili. That's well, yeah.
1: So that's, I I get to play the eccentric Anglican cleric, and I've got my chili chef coming, and he's going to play the eccentric Texas uh, chili chef, I guess.
2: There you go. Hat and boots, and you know. (laughs) For many years, I've been thinking I I would, and I'm never going to do it, but. I have in mind a novel that I would write about Texas
0: mm-hmm.
2: and in the novel, the story takes place around the mythical ranch that is up in the north. that is actually based on the XIT ranch. Uh, the owner of which in this part is true is a devout Methodist. He actually made all of the cowboys. They could not swear. They could not drink. They could not own firearms. They couldn't even own their own horse.
0: Hmm. In other words,
2: the largest ranch in Texas, our image of kind of the rowdy cowboy, it's completely wrong. It was a pious Methodist ranch.
1: (laughs) I think uh, that's funny. Bonhoeffer would call that enthusiasm. (laughs) He's always talking about the enthusiasts. (laughs)
2: And I think that's actually not unusual. Now, Methodism, of course, the, I've also done the gunslingers. You know, I think you can divide up all the gunslingers according to their religion.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> but everybody's religious, right? Everybody's part of a mm-hmm. church. Who is it? Wesley Harden or John Wesley? John Wesley
1: Harden. <laughs> you can tell
2: in his name <laughs> what, what, his, what his religion is. His father's a Methodist preacher and he's he himself when he's not killing people and is in prison he actually teaches methodist sunday school to his fellow prisoners now i don't know what that means
1: so the the first bishop uh missionary bishop uh in the area of dallas for the episcopal church bishop garrett he was trained uh i can't remember either trinity college in ireland or maybe even oxford you know that sort of type of person who had come over here and been made a bishop and he was sent to Texas and if one of the stories goes as he must have been in the area of Fort Worth Dallas he he gets to his hotel the place he's going to stay and the only rooms they had available at the time were all like above saloons so he goes in and he he's up in his room and there's a shooting downstairs while he's Uh, in his room before he's gone to bed the first night and one of his first acts is to give last rites to some guy who got shot in a gunfight uh, that they laid out on a table in the saloon (laughs) that's
2: perfect that's perfect (laughs) now i i've kind of there was a time when i knew i remembered all but i think doc holiday may have been episcopalian
1: would be fitting
2: i mean you know he's from back east he's a doc, and And I'm sure that that carries over into the manner in which they like to kill people. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Today, we're doing martyrdom.
1: Yeah, so kind of a provocative question. And maybe we need to talk about what does it mean to be a martyr? What does it mean to be a saint? Like, What what do we even think about those things? Uh, But the question arises from the fact that Westminster Abbey has put up 10 statues of martyrs of the 20th century. And among these people are like Oscar Romero, Martin Luther King Jr., Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And a lot of questions come from this, like what what is the symbolic move trying to say? Uh, In Anglicanism, Westminster Abbey is indeed Anglican. uh, In Anglicanism, we do have concepts of martyrs and saints, but most of the time we're hesitant about any, uh, calling any person after the Reformation a martyr or a saint, because there's no way that the whole church could sort of participate in in that affirmation. However, it is also true that for historic, we'll say little c Catholic churches, churches of some sensibility of liturgics and Catholicity, martyrs are always considered saints. So even martyrs that nobody knows about are considered saints. Um, so that's all sort of in the background, but I think it's a provocative question to ask us about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, because in no straightforward way would we be able to say he was a Christian martyr in the same sense that we might talk about second century, third century martyrs who were killed in the arena. You know, you have stories like Ignatius's martyrdom or Polycarp's martyrdom, Perpetua and Felicitas, these sort of martyrs that we have hagiographies about. And their deaths are used by the church as teaching tools, and really is a way of also forming an authority that is other than episcopal authority, which is also an interesting thing. Not, I don't think, in the early church ever counter towards episcopal authority. But here are other ways of thinking about the authority of the church, and martyrdom was a big part of that. So I thought we might start because we do, we come, we have these two different traditions in Anglicanism. I, I can talk a little bit about what we think about saints, what various Anglicans think about saints, because it's actually not very straightforward. Uh, but I wondered if you might talk a little bit about what constitutes a saint, or would you even want to talk that way, uh, Paul?
2: I, you know, a Protestant saint, uh, that, that's nearly an oxymoronic yeah, statement, right. uh, that we're all saints. The idea of a special class of people Uh, speaks over and against kind of the Protestant spirit. Martyr may be slightly different in that there is a tradition, you know, that martyr, of course, the word comes from the word witness, but it came to have a special meaning that the apostles uh, would be martyrs and witnesses. And then I think that the word slightly, it was used in a different way than we might use it, and that is that Anyone who suffered might have been called a martyr. And then I think it became specifically associated with those who would die for their witness. That is, usually we think of it for the preaching of the gospel or the direct witness of the gospel. We all recognize there are these people who have died for the faith, but the question is what is the faith i mean that's that's really what's at stake here i think in the question in words it it may seem like a kind of semantic question or a trivial in some way but i think it's an important question because in saying what a martyr is we're actually describing what christianity is about you know bonhoeffer himself He is raising this very issue. He, I think, is kind of has a premonition that, in fact, he may die a martyr's death, or at least he's going to be killed. And I think he himself is questioning whether he might be a martyr or what kind of martyr he might be.
1: Yeah, I think that's key, that traditionally speaking, or maybe I should say, you know, the formal definitions for like the Roman Catholic Church of a martyr is someone who dies because of the hatred of their faith. To locate part of this question in terms of faith is, I do think, key. Because Bonhoeffer, of course, why he's killed isn't exactly that, though it's certainly the faith that leads him, I think in his own mind, even to where he uh, is working for the Abvar. So it is, it's a live question. What does it mean to die preaching the faith, and I think you're also 100% correct in identifying with that in the sense that this is a faith that is shared or it's a proclamation of the faith, so that when we uphold somebody as a martyr we say somebody is a saint, a part of what the church has meant in doing that is that this person's life authoritatively teaches the gospel in such a way that if we would follow in their example, we too would be following in the way of Jesus. I think very closely related to Paul's words, uh, follow me as I fall, imitate me as I imitate Christ sort of thing.
2: You know, I think there are people we can all agree, oh, those are martyrs, you know, that the early Christian witnesses who died in the Colosseum, that's usually very often what we think of. And very often they were professing Christ, or sometimes they they remained silent. But anyway, there's no question that they mm-hmm. were martyrs. But the, the church
1: people, uses them that way.
2: Yeah, but it's interesting that in Westminster Abbey, I mean, even somebody like Martin Luther King, was he, you know, we could ask the same thing that Mm -hmm. we're asking about Bonhoeffer, that, you know, why did he die? And what role for civil rights? Okay, that may stretch us a little bit. We see, okay, the gospel is inclusive of... Uh, advocating for the poor, and he's doing that on behalf of Christ. I don't know if you're familiar, actually, the plowshares, we are forging plowshares. There is another organization called Plowshares. They protest at nuclear weapons sites and have, you know, actually broken into these sites and have been imprisoned. You know, is that a kind of martyrdom? Is that part of what we might include and I, here i'm just throwing out the question to say you know to kind of stretch it to see okay when we say the gospel what do we mean do we mean simply the heart of the gospel of mm-hmm. uh, the specific preaching about christ and of course i think this is what is coming up for bonhoeffer this is a quote this is actually from a sermon that he gives He says, we must not be be surprised if, once again, times return for our church when the blood of martyrs will be required, I keep seeing it coming. But even if we have the courage and faith to spill it, this blood will not be as innocent or as clear Mm -hmm. as that of the first martyrs. Much of our own guilt will lie in our blood the guilt of the useless servant who is thrown into the darkness. That's an interesting take. He understands the church and Christians have been implicated in the problem that's arising in Nazi Germany. I think it's not out of the realm, out of his realm of possibility of thought here that, oh, well, I might die. Mm -hmm. And I think that he could be thinking, even if he does, and of course, this is the question about Bonhoeffer's own understanding of his death. Is he making a departure? Is he separating himself from his understanding? Or in fact, is it because of his understanding of who he is as a Christian that he takes part in the plot against Hitler? So I I suppose that all of that's part of the question here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a fascinating quote, uh, not least because of when it comes from. June 15th, 1932 is technically before the Arian paragraphs and before the confessing church. So after you have the Arian paragraphs, Dietrich Bonhoeffer will start using the phrase, a state of confession. The state of confession that he's talking about really has to do with the fact that he thinks the gospel is at stake. So is he already in 1932 thinking this may be the way or, uh, the way in which everything is heading? Um, that's quite interesting. And I think it speaks to that bit of the compromise. Uh, what does it mean for him for the church to be compromised? Well, in a very real sense, when he starts talking about uh, the church entering a state of confession where the gospel is at stake. His point is that he thinks the German Christians, that the tech, so technical phrase for those who just go along with Nazism, who accept the Aryan paragraphs, etc., he thinks that in making the moves they have made, they have lost both the church and the world simultaneously. And in his own uh, Lutheran framework in which the church is primary task is to proclaim the gospel to the world, how can one do that when you no longer have the church and no longer have the world either? And that seems to be at the heart of uh, what drives him from that point on in 1933 going forward, and really does make sense of a lot of the moves he makes, as you were just saying, like how does uh, somebody like Dietrich Bonhoeffer end up working for counterintelligence in the first place, and roped into um, this plot to assassinate Hitler. Though maybe we should say he's more roped into the conspiracy because he's, it's not as if he is ever uh, you know, holding a weapon, hiding behind buildings trying to kill Hitler or anything like that. But he definitely is a part of the conspiracy. So how does he find himself in that position? And, and I think it speaks directly to this. Go ahead.
2: For our listeners that maybe we should remind them specifically what the Aryan paragraphs amount to.
1: Yes. So the Aryan paragraphs speak really into the German civil service. And the Aryan paragraphs say that anyone who is not of Aryan descent can no longer serve in the government. You might think, well, okay, that seems like an odd thing for a pastor to be concerned with. But what we have to remember is that the church was actually a part of the civil service at this point in time. So what the Aryan paragraphs amount to for the church is saying really that who you are as a Aryan German, which of course is a made-up sort of thing, defines you even over and against, say, Christian baptism. So Bonhoeffer lived in a neighborhood in which there were lots and lots of prominent Jewish families who had converted to Christianity either a generation or two back, or even within his own lifetime, to the extent that there are German pastors who are, of German, uh, who are of Jewish descent in the eyes of uh, the Nazis. That poses a huge problem for the gospel or a, a theological problem, because then the Aryan paragraphs amount to a form of heresy in which you're saying that Christian baptism doesn't, is actually a subsequent or of a lesser importance than, say, who one is naturally, uh, where one is born, one's ethnicity. Uh, Bonhoeffer, though, is sophisticated enough that he's not only attacking that, he's also just saying uh, this whole idea of conflating the Jews of the first century with uh, a sort of Jewish race and all of this is kind of nonsense anyway, as well as thinking that Germans are somehow like pure Aryan, uh, whatever that would even mean is nonsense. So he's attacking this at several different levels. But his big problem is that it does constitute a heresy in which baptism is not seen as the marker of what it means to be a Christian.
2: And maybe this question itself gets at partly what we're talking about. That is, in our discussions, even in this understanding, you know, as to what Bonhoeffer is about, is he primarily concerned with reforming the church? Or in fact, you know, so he talks about a worldliness. And this is actually Bethke's interpretation. This is a quote. Bonhoeffer projects a martyrdom that is the result of bearing testimony on behalf of a threatened humanity. Martyrdom, which is a sacrifice for the sake of humanity. It is not for the sake of an idea or idol, but for the sake of a justified humanity. Bethke's idea, and maybe Bonhoeffer's idea here is that the Christian is for the world, the church is for the world. You know, we've discussed that and potential ideas of what that might mean. But if we agree with Bonhoeffer's depiction of the purpose of the church, I think then we've also expanded the meaning of what a martyr might be.
1: That's right. Yeah. So I think key in this, is what you just said. That is that for Bonhoeffer, Christ is the man for others, and the church is the community for others. And ultimately, what is the goal there is justification. I mean, in this sense that Bonhoeffer uh, does think that the point of the world is to receive the gospel the church preaches. Uh, That's what makes up the integrity of the world, which is a fascinating way of putting it, because that means the world doesn't necessarily have an innate integrity. And since that, that phrase, the world, it is a sort of construct, but it has to have an integrity. It has to be able to sustain itself so it can receive the gospel for the sake of justification. And Bonhoeffer is going to call uh, these ideas that were prevalent then in German Christianity, uh, idolatry. And that's basically the justification comes from within oneself that's tied directly to the Aryan paragraphs because the Aryan paragraphs make it out such that being a German or being Aryan, having this sort of culture in a sense is what is justifying about you. It is being the people who produce a Luther rather than agreeing with Luther that is justifying. And Bonhoeffer is going to talk about that and call it idolatry. So for the sake of the justification of the world, Um, Bonhoeffer wants to return to a a orthodox way of thinking for him, an orthodox Lutheran way of thinking, in which righteousness, justification is alien given to us by God, and that Christ mediates all things to us. Uh, So this, of course, goes to what we might have said last time about Kierkegaard. For Bonhoeffer, Christ is the mediator of all things, which means we don't receive any other person. We don't receive uh, righteousness. We don't receive God. We don't even receive ourselves apart from Christ mediating these things to us. So then Bonhoeffer's move in uh, Witness, or what he was talking about there, how do we live then for the sake of the justification of the world, works in two senses. It is, as you said, to maybe reform the church. Uh, It is in another sense to reform uh, the world such that it's even prepared to receive the gospel, But all of that can explain a human actor, such as he's going to demonstrate agency later on and as he progresses towards his own death, in the sense that he thinks there is no longer a way in which the gospel can be proclaimed and received, what steps have to be taken to get there. So then you can even see his political action or his resistance as participating towards that goal. Of making sure the church and the world exist in such a way that the gospel can be preached and received, ultimately for the justification of the world. So it's all about the gospel in a sense, or it's all about, uh, it's very Christocentric in a sense for Bonhoeffer, even these actions that might seem to us as simply being in resistance to Nazism or, you know, as political actions.
2: Yeah, let me make two comments here. One, You know we've talked about that in world war one that a saying that would be put on the tombs of soldiers or even the unknown soldiers uh was that you know he who would lay down his life for me that the idea is well every good christian soldier has died on behalf of jesus and in doing so has taken up their cross and followed christ and so i think that's part of the danger in this is that we would just spread out every human act of war and violence as if it is doing the gospel. But I think that what you're describing, and let me know if I'm getting this right, that is that within a Lutheran understanding, that with the failure of the government, the failure of the church, that Bonhoeffer is being true to his Lutheranism in taking up the plot against Hitler.
1: Yeah, so the way I would say it is it is Bonhoeffer's Lutheranism that makes him conceptualize the problem quite like he does, but of course the way he works this out, I don't think he thinks that it's formulaic, so there isn't some formulaic answer to this to be found in Lutheranism, but identifying the problem in that way is definitely true to his Lutheran background. It is interesting. So this this quote we were talking about coming from John, he sort of takes that up in discipleship. What Bonhoeffer wants to say, I think, is that the you know, the soldier's activity in behalf of the state is never fulfilling the mandate of the church to preach the gospel. Those are two different things. But he is going to talk in ethics in such a way where the soldier's activity may be fulfilling God's mandate given to the state. I'm not for sure that we're entirely, or that we want to be entirely comfortable with that way of conceiving these things, but uh, I think that is true to Bonhoeffer. In other words, there is no such thing, really, as a soldier of the church or a Christian soldier in that sense, but he does have a a way in which Christians do um, fulfill these other mandates given by God, which are not the ultimate thing. He's always going to say that justification, redemption, reconciliation is, is the ultimate thing. Uh, but he does have a place for preservation. And the way uh, these other mandates, mandates of God do work out in the world, Christians might participate or serve in those ways as well. It doesn't seem terribly consistent to me, I'll be honest. Uh, in other words, I think for us, uh, a more Wassian take on this, or a, a Moriodarian, if we want to think about John Howard Yoder, even um, a Moriodarian take on this is going to be more consistent with the way people post World War II, Christians post World War II, that are willing to take up a, a stance for pacifism or nonviolence, uh, or thinking about what does it mean to consistently follow Christ in these ways, are going to do. I don't think Bonhoeffer fits that very well, uh, which may be troubling.
2: And I think, may, maybe we just should point out a historical fact here, and that is that, of course, with Protestantism, with Lutheranism, just war is in, uh, becomes part of a confession. It had never been part of uh, any kind of creed in the Catholic Church. It had always been there as a kind of—everybody had maybe acknowledged just war. But the idea was, well, yeah, but even if you participate in war uh, as a, a prince or whatever your role is, you still have to go to confession because the idea is, oh, no, you sinned. But with the advent of Protestantism, the just war is actually incorporated into the understanding that, that no, you can actually be a Christian soldier and fight in a war, and that is a fulfilling. Then it's not a departure from your from mm-hmm. uh, your your uh, uh, call of Christ.
1: So I want to agree with you mostly on that point. And uh, it's really I just want to nuance it a little bit differently. A creed and a confession in Reformation and post-Reformation Christianity are not the same thing. So that the creeds, the historic creeds, the Nicene and the Apostolic Creed. Uh, the Apostles' Creed are taken um, is what does one believe to be a Christian, and that's always connected with, say, baptism, sacraments of the Eucharist, being a part of the body who receives Christ through in the in and through the sacraments. A confession of faith is not quite the same thing. So, a confession of the of faith in Lutheranism, you're definitely right in this. Uh, Lutheranism, Calvinism, these are confessional churches. Are formulations for authoritative formulations, one might say, for how the faith that has been received must be interpreted. And this is where you get this pigeonhole for just war, for ideas of like Christian executioners, the death penalty, and all those sorts of things as being maybe mandated by God or according to God's will would be the way of thinking about that. And those are at the level of confessions. So authoritative ways in which one has to understand the faith that is received. A creed, the historic creeds, are not just ways one understands the faith that has been received, but is the faith that you are receiving, and has sort of a different status in the minds of both Catholic Christians and Reformation Christians, so that, you know, now we have you know, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It's a uh, explaining Catholic theology, walking through one, the creeds, but also the Lord's Prayer, these other things. It's an authoritative way of understanding the faith, not the faith that has been traditioned or passed on itself. So even among these Protestants, it's not as if these confessions hold the same level or status as, say, the historic creeds of the church. It's not as if we have a new creed. But that is telling, then, why is it that at the beginning of modernity and after the Reformation... Because a lot of these confessions um, are not actually uh, parallel to the founding of the Reformation. It's not like people get together and they come up with a confession and that starts the Reformation. They're almost always reflective. So you have these confessions happening years after. Uh, the one that comes to mind is the Synod of Dort, which is a reformed council that comes up with a uh, confession the, the Anglicans get invited to, maybe this is why I know about it, the Anglicans get invited that they're going to reject it, but that's in the 17th century. Uh, that's not actually in the 16th century when that's happening. So that's maybe a small point, but I do think it's important that the way this is being worked out in a confessional church is at the level of systematic or speculative theology uh, and authoritative systematic theology or doctrine, but not quite the same thing as what's going on in the creeds, which is to say, what does it mean to have received the faith of the apostles?
2: I appreciate the explanation, but is your explanation peculiarly Anglican or Episcopalian? In that, in other words, if you're not a Lutheran, you know, you can kind of nuance this. And yes, the in the Anglican church, we may have had this confession, but, you know, not all Anglicans believe that. But I'm not sure, and, and I'm, this is a question, that it seems that if you're a Lutheran and that you have a Lutheran statement coming from Luther about the I- issues like just war, the role of government, mm-hmm. uh, that that, in fact, is authoritative.
1: Oh, I said it was authoritative. Actually, it's not Anglican at all, since Anglicans are not a confessional body. So this only applies to Reformed churches and to Lutheran churches. My point is that you have to be able to distinguish and understand that magisterial Protestants are distinguishing between what is a creed, a historic creed, the Apostles or the Nicene, and a confession of their church. So that, and why this is maybe important, and this is where these things like just war get put in, it's at the level of the confessions of their church, because Reformed people and Lutheran people are both going to acknowledge each other as Christians, even though they have separate confessions of faith. They are confessional churches. This is the way we do theology. And you're absolutely right. It is authoritative. But it's not the same thing as saying, here are the creeds of historic Christianity, the faith once received. And if you reject that, then you're no longer a Christian. And that's what they're all also going to say. So if you're a magisterial Protestant, then the creeds of the church or what it takes to be a Christian. And actually, I, I'm not even for sure where the Nicene Creed ranks for magis- for some magisterial Protestant groups, meaning for whatever reason, they favor the Apostles' Creed over the Nicene Creed, which is not the case both in Anglicanism and Roman Catholicism. So that's really the point that I'm making, is that it's a different sort of thing in saying, oh, we've created a new creed, which nobody is really doing, and having a confession which is absolutely authoritative but doesn't mark out who's a Christian and who isn't a Christian meaning you can still disagree about just war and uh, Lutheran will continue, will not think that is an issue that renders a reformed Christian group who has maybe a different understanding you know out of the faith does that make sense
2: yeah yeah I'm, and uh, totally in agreement i'm just thinking of the the you know typical guy on the street, that uh, he doesn't care about this conversation. That is that what is arising, and I think that we're seeing this in this question of Bonhoeffer and is Bonhoeffer a martyr, I think that part of what is caught up in this is that we have a very different sensibility about violence and war than the first church did. And even, you know, that there is an evolving understanding that is certainly it's reflected in the confessions. But I'm not sure that for most people that distinction holds. That is that they can stand and proudly proclaim uh, their participation in a particular war on the authority of the church and in their own mind the distinction that you made probably is, uh, we understand, oh, there is a distinction. But for most people, to die a, a martyr, maybe just to, to die in a war, and the distinct, the kind of the nuance that we're putting mm-hmm. on this, I don't think it's there for most people.
1: Uh, that brings up another interesting question. Lutherans observe saints' days but not in the same way as Roman Catholics and not even in the same way as Anglicans have historically done. Anglicans, depending, I want to say, actually, there have always been Anglicans who have prayed for the dead, which is something Lutherans do not do, but Lutherans still do observe saints' days. In any church that has a notion of observing the calendar in that manner, martyr is not a loose term, Martyr actually is a special designation for a particular way one is a saint and is then remembered on, say, your day or the day of, like, all saints or something like that. I don't think now this would not be true of, like, Reformed churches at all, because they don't do any of this—but in Lutheran churches, it is my understanding, especially the ones in Germany, which tend— to be a lot more uh, true to sort of the medieval magisterial reformation, that martyr is not just a term that is used as loosely as we might use it. In other words, I'm not for sure that they would ever apply it to soldiers, like individual soldiers. In other words, people wouldn't just have this concept of, oh, he's a martyr. Now, what I'm not for sure is that they might not decide that maybe a whole group of soldiers that died in a particular battle might not be considered martyrs especially when you think back to like the 30 years war or something they are fighting for the the, their faith in that sense they may very well be considered martyrs by lutherans uh again i'm not trying to argue that this is a good thing i'm just saying i think this is actually a pretty nuanced discussion
2: and that would be you know i looked uh, just quickly uh, on this issue and the first person i came up that said bonhoeffer's not a martyr is a lutheran pastor and so i think that fits into what you're describing that is that he's he's quite he admires bonhoeffer you know he references him quite a bit but he said as i read bonhoeffer's story i understand that he was killed because he got wrapped up in a plot to assassinate hitler when he was arrested it was not because he was a christian he was arrested because the plot failed and the authorities treated him the way any government would have treated an insurgent. So here's a good Lutheran who's mm-hmm. saying, yeah, according I guess that what you're describing, according to a Lutheran understanding, Bonhoeffer's not
1: qualified as a martyr. Well, I think it's an interesting point, uh, and I'm glad that you bring it up, because it even works into Bonhoeffer's own theology about things, as we were talking about a moment ago there is a sense in which Lutherans think you're probably doing the will of God uh, if you fight uh, for the state. But they also recognize that's not the same thing as fulfilling the mission God has given to the church, meaning the church does not mandate that sort of thing and and shouldn't. Uh, At least that's Bonhoeffer's understanding that he's working out. He thinks a part of the problem, in fact, is that Lutherans no longer talk this way meaning that the state, the world, and the church have been collapsed together, as sort of making justification, salvation, all this redundant, making Lutheran theology redundant. Because if you don't have a world to preach the gospel to, then what's the point? And you've got to remember that they made sense of that distinction even, in, even during the heyday of what we now think of as Christendom. So it is an interesting critique. In other words, Bonhoeffer is not simply saying, Uh, that, oh, Christendom's the case, that people are baptized, Germans and Christians at the same time, but he thinks something further than that, something more severe has happened where you have now lost the world. There's no place to preach the gospel because the world now thinks that it is identical with the church or that justification comes from within, and so he thinks that's sort of a heresy that's going on. That separation is an interesting thing. Doesn't Metaxas's biography say martyr on the cover? Yes, yes, and, uh, yes. Uh, in no way do we want to endorse Metaxas's biography. That is sort of, I think, why Bonhoeffer is popular. So maybe we should uh, mention it, that Bonhoeffer is popular, maybe the most, I actually heard recently that he is the most popular theologian of the 20th century, which... Oh, wow. Uh was shocking to me, but I think it's popular in a sense that, yeah, most people have no clue what he's actually talking about or his theology, but it is this sort of biographical, compelling story, Mm -hmm. and the way Metaxas frames that, of course, is that Bonhoeffer believes everything good evangelical Americans believe, and don't bother about that pesky stuff he says in letters and papers to prison, Uh, And also, don't bother about that pesky pacifism stuff that he says in discipleship. Really, he's just a good evangelical who is willing to die fighting the Nazis. Yeah. (laughs) Which is, you know, flat and stupid and uh, apparently sold a lot of books.
2: Here's a quote from Bonhoeffer. This is from The Cost of Discipleship. He says, It is not only my task to look after the victims of bad men who drive a motor car in a crowded street. But to do all in my power to stop their driving at all and comment, the martyrdom of Bonhoeffer and others who died like him came to pass in the twilight of political conspiracy and with the shifting feeling that their effort came too late. Certainly, it did not lead to a public confession in the marketplace or the Colosseum, nor any obviously heroic notion. Everything took place in the silent incognito of concentration camps and dark cellars. And, of course, this reflects Bonhoeffer's own understanding that, oh, even if you call him a martyr, it's not that he's a heroic martyr, but one who is a dishonored witness on behalf of humanity. And so he does not distance himself from the world In as an example of purity or a witness to be held up like those first Christian martyrs, but rather shares with those who are involved in the wrongdoings of the world and sees himself complicit in that.
1: That's right. Let me paraphrase uh, Bonhoeffer from memory. It's very similar to this quote, and uh, I think we can work with this quite a bit. Because at some point, it's not enough just to bandage those who are being ran over by the wheel, but you have to seize the wheel itself. Mm -hmm. And so there's a shift in the way he conceives of his own resistance, which is a shift from, okay, we stand in solidarity with Jews because the state is acting evil towards them we have to save the church because the church can no longer proclaim the gospel because it's been considered synonymous with the world justification comes from within, to at some point, it seems like he makes this shift in his own action, in his own life, that none of that is working because one has to seize the wheel itself, which is to say the state is so corrupt that the only way the church can relate to this state is to take control of it completely. Uh, in other words, to write it, which is a sort of an interesting way of thinking about it. And I think it also speaks to what we said earlier, that the whole Lutheran notion of the two kingdoms in no way is a blueprint for how relations of the state and the church should work. That's not what that has. any. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It's not like, oh, here's the way you do Christian government. That's not what Luther meant. That's not what Bonhoeffer means. It's simply to say that there is the kingdom of this world, and it has something to do with preservation of order and human relationships so that the church can proclaim the gospel that actually all things are mediated by Christ. Uh, Justification, life, uh, the other, yourself, all that only comes through Christ. Christ has a total claim over everything. That's where Bonhoeffer starts. So The question is then, are all of his actions, even as um, the Lutheran pastor was saying, you know, he ends up just being killed because he's an insurgent, and that's how any government would treat an insurgent, which is true, but are those actions to the end of seizing the wheel itself so that there can once more be a sort of world in which the gospel can be proclaimed? And in that way, do we see Bonhoeffer's actions as those that might be imitated in similar situations i don't think we're in a similar situation by the way like i think uh you can actually proclaim the gospel in the united states it's not so much the problem that you can't proclaim the gospel it's that uh perhaps the mediums in which we proclaim the gospel are so secular consumeristic capitalist that we haven't yet figured out how to proclaim a a gospel that's true i don't know Uh, Mm America. Has warps Christianity in those ways. But I think that's at the heart of this question.
2: Yeah, that's Bonhoeffer's own accusation against the United States. The gospel's not proclaimed there. And that you understand that in his context, well, in our context, I understand what he meant, that the atmosphere is so distorting and perverting that what we call the gospel so often is then just a proclamation of a kind of cultural understanding.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, I think it actually, uh, I know we've talked about this a lot, but I was looking into another guy who has written his dissertation at uh, at Aberdeen, which has the Center for Protestant Theology or something like that. And is a good place to go study Bonhoeffer. Talking about Bonhoeffer's religionlessness and the sacraments, And in a sense, uh, the way this author uh, lays out what Bonhoeffer's talking about religion or religionlessness is a sort of disposition. And I think that's really what we might say is the problem with the United States or Christianity in the United States is we have this sort of disposition in which we think that Christianity is going to fulfill this religious part of us, just like, uh, you know, anything else we purchase or consume fulfills us for a moment and Monhoeffer, in a sense, is saying, "Man, we've got to get rid of that." And wouldn't it be nice if churches didn't cater to that sort of thing? Uh, what if church really was about proclaiming the gospel, m- receiving Christ in the sacraments, and being a community who exists for others? I think that's really at the heart of what he's getting at.
2: Yeah, you, know, you and maybe in this
1: uh, in this conversation, like that would be an argument for his life as a martyrdom or as a witness, as a a tool that the church uses to authoritatively teach about how one exists in the world for others.
2: Yeah, that you you mentioned the the role of mediation, and I realized that is so key. Interestingly, I think it's key to both Kierkegaard and Bonhoeffer
1: and Bart. It's a very Bartian point as well.
2: Strangely enough, I think is Hegelian, <laughs> <laughs> but of course, think- in, a, in a very different way. We're, we have this focus on the Holy Spirit and the media. In other words, the discussion really is a Trinitarian discussion and what the Trinity is and who God is. That's really, we're, we're getting down to the basics of the very heart of Christian theology. Who is God for the world? And I think that in Bonhoeffer's understanding of this, which is very Kierkegaardian, the, the discussion is really about who is God and how do we participate in who God is and then in what the world is.
1: So I think a point should be made here. Uh, lest I think you're right. I just think that we, we have to be careful with this because this would be really easy to misunderstand. And that's that Hegelian theologians, so Hegelians whether they're true to Hegel or whatever. And we don't, I don't care about that. You know, who who reads Hegel accurately? Who gets to decide? But Hegelians in the 19th century and the Hegelians that are setting the tone for the university in which Bart and Bonhoeffer both study in and function within, read the passage in Philippians chapter two, the Kenosis passage, as Jesus, the one who is self-emptying, as being then a fact about the Trinity. Bart Bonhoeffer, and Kierkegaard are not doing that. Mm -hmm. They're writing against people who are doing that. So that I don't know about Bonhoeffer specifically, but both Kierkegaard and Bart are going to affirm divine simplicity. So in fact, it is the unchanging, simple, triune God of eternity who has a claim on the world, who reveals himself in and through the cross. This is where they're all theologians of the cross who reveals himself to us in the weakness of the cross as Jesus Christ. And Jesus the Christ is then the one who has this claim on the world or the one who mediates all things. And in the sense that is mediating God to us, but uh, especially for Bonhoeffer and Kierkegaard, is mediating ourselves to us. Jesus is the third term that stands in between all of us. But that is not to say that it is somehow the canonic Jesus who is definitive of the Trinity. It's actually, that would be to confound, or I mean, to conflate rather, uh, the mission of God in Christ and the procession of the Logos from the Father. And so none of them make that move. They're actually writing against theologians making that move.
2: And this is interesting. I think it's pertinent that it's all caught up in this question (laughs) as to as to who christ is who is god and who are we and what is the world that all of this is involved in the question was dietrich Bonhoeffer a martyr because in this we're asking a basic question about all of these categories and how they they interwork and how we understand what christianity is
1: we're asking what does it mean to be faithful
2: yeah 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 I guess then, and maybe this is, I, I'm curious then, what's the answer from <laughs> your perspective?
1: Yeah, um, I think I'm i am willing to say both things because I really, in the sense that what martyrdom is, uh, and in my own understanding that every martyr is a saint in the sense that this is an authoritative life for what it means to be united to Christ, an example, a teaching example with some authority. That you could say yes, and I would be willing to go there if what we mean is Bonhoeffer's life is given in such a way where he is following the Christ who is the man for others, conceiving of the church as a community that exists for others, and recognizes that that means the church has to preach the gospel above all else. Uh, call us to being justified. I mean, even, I think, probably my understanding of the way justification works in Bonhoeffer's is different, but it doesn't really matter for this point, point. and that's that his whole life is given to this end. His whole life is given to the end in which he wants to see the church have integrity to preach the gospel and make sure the world is justified. He thinks that uh, the church actually preaches into the world, and that the world has to have a certain sort of integrity. I mean, I guess I'm Augustinian on this point, that You know, there is a role for the state to preserve the world so the church can do this. But the way I would conceive that um, myself is that it is almost in the same way we talk about the problem of evil. Such that once you say there is a problem of evil, it means there is the answer, which is God. God is the primary thing. Evil is actually only ever uh, a perversion, a privation, uh, etc. I would say the same thing. Christ or God, the kingdom of God, the gospel is the primary thing, and this category that we've conceived of as the world is not one we can give a clear and definitive answer, what is it, because it is and is preserved, and uh, its own integrity only comes from being a receptacle of the gospel. And I think if if that's what we mean when we say Bonhoeffer is a martyr, that's what his aim is, that's what the witness that he's offering to us and saying that, yes, Christians should be concerned about these things, then yes. Uh, If what we mean is something like uh, probably what Eric Metaxas means, I probably shouldn't say, I know what he means. because I've never read his book and don't intend to is that, you know, Bonhoeffer in some way is, uh, you know, this lone Christian who stands before God and wants to take fight Nazis. Like, yeah, I don't really care for that as a, is an authoritative example of what a Christian life ought to be.
2: Who's the movie director that Matt likes so much? Uh Tarantino? Uh, Tarantino, <laughs> yeah. The, <laughs> that metaxas Bonhoeffer is a Tarantino. You know, that uh the Jesus thing would be to give the Jews the the machine guns and that they're the ones who And, and i guess that's my problem here i i'm i'm of two minds i'm a i'm enough of an anabaptist to think that you know when he relinquished his pacifism if that's in fact what he did to think that as he describes it himself that he's going against his own good conscience that he's going against what he would see as a pure christianity He recognizes that he's doing that, and of course, as a good Anabaptist would say, and look what happened. It was not in any way helpful, his participation in the counterintelligence, and in fact, when that bomb goes off under the the table and Hitler survives it, he proclaims himself then truly in God's providence that God has preserved him. And here is a sign from God himself, that national socialism and Adolf Hitler is God's man. That's an unfortunate outcome that could have come out differently, but it is true. I, and I'm not saying I'm all there. I'm not all in with this, but I understand that understanding. Oh, he broke his own good conscience. He uh, went against his own pacifist ideals and it was disastrous. And we lost Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Here was a guy who had a budding genius for the church, who whose life was cut short needlessly. Now that I would say this is a good Anabaptist interpretation. Uh, well, let me pause there. and
1: oh, I think that's wonder. so uh, of course, as we've talked, I don't read Bonhoeffer that way. But I do think that's a wonderful critique of the situation regardless. In other words, uh, from, you know, a sort of Harawassian Anabaptist perspective, I think it's a wonderful critique of what goes wrong uh, when we do imagine we can use violence in this way. Yeah, I don't think this is what's hard and uh, maybe there's more research to be done. I don't know. I mean, I'm still new at Bonhoeffer, too, in a sense, returning to Bonhoeffer more seriously lately. Uh, I would be very interested in laying out exactly what Bonhoeffer's pacifism was. Because even in discipleship, as he's walking through the Sermon on the Mount, it's not really clear the way he sees that playing out in the world. In other words, he's not relinquishing there the idea that Christians still serve the state. I don't think he thinks in any way that the church, I don't think he thinks that the church is preaching of the gospel. Uh, the church's own ethical integrity is for the church itself, but I think he does think it's for the world. Uh, and I, so I, I think of him being in direct contrast with Hauerwas there, who would say, uh, you know, the church doesn't live for the world. Uh, the church makes the world more the world. The, wor- the church is to cr- make the world more itself. He says this in lots of lectures, sort of a quip. In other words, the church's role in preaching and reading uh, the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, becoming virtuous, is for the life of the church. It's its own politics, it's, its own integrity, that really just, in a sense, brings about a judgment of the world, or shows the how the inadequacies of the world, something like that. I don't think that's where Bonhoeffer is. Uh, I think your critique is very valid, though, in that sense. So I would, I'd be interested in... What exactly does it mean for Bonhoeffer to be a pacifist, knowing that uh, pacifism in general in the interwar period is a much more popular and possible option, which I think may actually make it, in a sense, less consistent? In other words, if pacifism is an actual option on the table for most people, uh, is it easier then to talk about limits? Whereas this is Wass's own experience, right? He says, well, I became a pacifist because I got up one day and accidentally said, I think I might be a pacifist, and people attacked me for it. And so I had to figure out, what does that actually mean? I don't know that there was the same sort of crucible in the interwar period in the 20th century that pacifism was a popular option. And so people weren't seeing it necessarily in, in Anabaptist terms as a rejection of the state or uh, rejection of cooperation with the state, which, you know, they don't now either, I guess. This is, I, we should be careful. I should be careful. Um, I recognize that Anabaptist groups actually have offices just like uh, Episcopalians and the Methodists trying to tell Congress what to do.
2: Oh, yeah. Imagine I did all it.
1: of those offices are equally useless.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I did an interview with uh, a guy that is with the Mennonite Church. They have an office in Washington, D.C. That's his full-time job. I, I have to say, well, I admire the effort, you know, that he's having <laughs> meetings with people and trying to, even as a pacifist, saying, well, if you're going to commit drone strikes, maybe you better yeah. figure out yeah, who yeah. the target is. So you got to admire them uh, for doing that. So, yeah, we can't sweepingly say, oh, this is what Anabaptists believe or this is what mm-hmm. Mennonites believe. I trace this a bit when we were doing the church history class, that uh, there is no group in the United States, and that has to be an overstatement. But as far as I could determine, every group that was indigenous, an indigenous Christian group to the United States, began as a, a nonviolent church, a pacifist church, and every group has abandoned that position. Hmm. Now that's my claim, and so I, in that I'm even inclu- including Seventh Day Adventists. Yeah, yeah. yeah I know what you including mean. Assemblies of God. I'm including the Christian Church. That is, there's actually not so many indigenous groups, but there are several. Mm-hmm. And strangely enough, then the Mennonites, though they're they're obviously not indigenous here, they've had a very similar experience in Canada and the United States that they themselves have in certain instances, just become more evangelicalism. Hmm. Maybe that's the, yeah. the, the acid that you're dipped in by being yeah, in this yeah. culture. I don't know.
1: That's good. This is a good place probably to leave it because it is sort of an open question, but I think to explore the question is really to ask what you were saying a moment ago is all those questions. Uh, what does it mean to be faithful? Who is God? What is the gospel? What is faith? Is um, all tied up in this question was Dietrich Bonhoeffer a martyr. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great
0: please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.